You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. reach him from the outside. Except by that most valuable hunting ground ever given to the student of the unusual. The agony column. Good evening and welcome to the Agony Column. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Tonight, live in the studio, Stephen Kessler. The eucalypts keep seducing me. The eucalypts keep seducing me, even as I glide with windows down in spring, under their overgrown galleries smelling deliciously medicinal, their leaves glimmering silvery in the blue breeze. It was a passing thing, this longing to be with trees, as with girls known ages since and seen today on the street, spirals of desire pulling me downward into the years, phantoms oblivious of their own allure. Those gorgeous trees, those girls, my own remembered possession, allow me to imagine I'm still alive, still able to smell what can't be held, to see what the breeze leaves. Stephen Kessler is a poet, translator, essayist, editor, and novelist. He's the, an editor and translator for The Sonnets by Jorge Luis Borges. He's the editor of the Redwood Coast Review. His new collection of poetry is Scratch Pegasus. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Well, it's nice to be here, and I appreciate being invited. This is such a really fabulous and interesting look. Um, what this made me think as I read this book was that language is this kind of lens that we really see everything through. And what these poems give us is a really interesting vision of the world, and it's very condensed. They, when I was reading this book, it actually would change the way I was thinking about the world. I would look around me, and I would find myself thinking in these kind of sentences that were, you know, bad emulations of what you were doing. But nonetheless, I think that's the beauty of poetry, that it really absolutely changes the way you see things around you. Well, uh, when it's when it's working, uh, that's certainly one of the things that it does. I think that by trying to um, identify in language the the experience that we're having just in, in everyday life, you know, just walking down the street or, or driving somewhere or, or in a shop or a, or a cafe. If, you know, I think if, you, if you're paying attention, um, things seem more resonant than they may appear to the casual observer. You know, there are all kinds of... I think one definition of, of madness is seeing too much meaning in everything. And I think that's what an artist also tends to do. And, you know, if you get too far into that zone, you're in a danger of kind of losing your, your orientation. But 
Uh, for me, uh, writing is a way of of uh, recognizing what I'm aware of as it happens. Uh, so a, lo- a lot of the poems in this book, although there are a lot of poems about memory, there are also poems like that one I just read that are really much more about a moment in the day. Um, in that case, you know, when I happened to be driving along Park Avenue through those eucalyptus groves w- one day, and that poem started to occur to me. Uh, but, you know, as a as a, a writer, my training is to record things in language and to discover things that maybe I don't know yet by uh, following the language where it leads me in a you know, uh, an active imagination. You know, um, I've driven down that same row of eucalypts. They're beautiful, and it's a beautiful view. It's a wonderful place to drive. I'm wondering if you talk about, you say the poem started to come to you then. Did you imagine, you know, specific lines, write them down, dictate them? How does that work for you? <laughs> well, it it varies from from poem to poem, depending upon the circumstances. I think it's hard to uh, swear to the the, the, prop, the the process of composition that that particular poem took, but I think probably, you know, I was aware of the sensations as I was driving through. I didn't stop to write anything down, and I, I, do, I don't even think that uh, or I don't remember necessarily having any phrases occur to me, uh, but uh, when I got home, and I don't even know if it was the same day, you know, it might have been the following day or a week later, uh, but the eucalyptus tree for me is just one of the most egregiously gorgeous creations of of, of nature, you know, and uh, I'm always I'm always engaged or in search of of beauty. I mean, I'm a romantic, and so the eucalyptus is such a, a, a beautiful tree that they've inspired a number of poems. Um, and that particular one, uh, you know, I couldn't really tell you how it, exactly how it came about, but at some point, I I started writing down <laughs> those lines, and and then later, you know, typed them and and probably changed a few things and. Uh, but uh, the the initial inspiration I could I could identify because I remember that day very specifically when this poem started to happen. You know, you talked about um, eucalyptus trees being important to you, and I can understand why because one of the things that is different about eucalyptus trees from I think most other trees is they have a very distinct scent, and smell really kicks in those kind of uh, memories and kicks in that kind of uh, I, what I guess might say is a poetic experience. You know, eucalyptus trees have a very controversial reputation, as you're probably aware. Mm-hmm. Um, some people call them gasoline trees because they are so flammable, and that's partly responsible for the devastation of the Berkeley-Oakland uh, fire in, uh, when, when was it, 91 or so, that so many homes were destroyed because the eucalypts just went up like matches. Um, but... You know, as, as uh, Pablo Neruda says of the rain in one of his poems, you know, I love you not because you are good, but for your beauty. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and other people complain about eucalypts that they, uh, you know, other, uh, other plants don't grow under them. And they really, they take up a lot, of, a lot of space in whatever environment. And they also, some of them reproduce really uh, promiscuously. So uh, 
unless you like the butterflies at uh, at Natural Bridges State Beach and enjoy the fact that they like uh, stopping in the eucalypts. Um, you know, if you're if you live underneath a big eucalypt, as a friend of mine does, and has branches and debris falling on your head all the time, you know, I imagine you might have an, another uh, another attitude toward them. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's the beauty that that, that does it, and also the I mean, the smell. Uh, you know, it's just an extraordinary thing to appear before your eyes, and uh, and a lot of trees are like that. But I just, I just happen to think eucalypts are among the most amazing. Uh, this collection begins with, is divided into four sections, and the first section is called Aging Heart, and I'm at least of an age where I can really, really appreciate the perceptions and the feelings and the emotions you evoke in here, and I'd like you to read uh, the very, I think it's the very first poem in the book, it's called Thrift Shop, which I think was just really blew me away with uh, what it says and how it describes something. Thrift Shop. This dust has history, traces of closets in whose deepest reaches lingered smells of perfume that enveloped some smitten suitor, whose suits harbor evidence of a lovely arm linked long since through his as they strolled the avenues of a city that wouldn't stop, that persisted in haunting them both all these years later. The jacket now hangs in seedy light, amid the abandoned wardrobes of strangers and knick-knacks salvaged from living rooms and the last uncracked plate of a set that nobody bought at a yard sale and various leftovers from love nests settled here at the home for orphaned objects. Warm fall weather just beyond the windows evokes losses past, seasons whose subtle breezes carried news of kitchens where dinner was cooking, as you bicycled by on the way home, or the breath of trees on some street you walked, alone late at night when you couldn't sleep, for the excitement of what you could sense coming. It came and it went, and here's the evidence, endless shelves stretching deathlessly, knitting cities with this network of used suitcases and scratched furniture where families ate and sat, Travelers packed their stuff, old women read books, and lovers slept entangled. You're not looking for a life story, but things whisper and your own possessions keep disappearing, so you find yourself prowling these strange aisles where others are all but present, their records a dollar each and still playable on your turntable. Music of last night's longing for one more day. I don't know where to start. There's so much great material in there. And one of the things I have to say is that hearing you read that poem was a very different experience for me from reading it myself. And I think that points up a couple of things. One, when we read these poems, probably not a bad idea to read them aloud to ourselves even so we can hear the sounds that you're meant to evoke. Exactly. I mean, that's really what lyric poetry is all about. Um, it's the sound. And if you don't experience the sound either silently in your own inner ear as you read, which I, that's the way I read. I don't often read aloud, but I hear the lines in my head. 
um, either that or reading them aloud or hearing them read aloud. I mean, that's the experience of lyric poetry uh, going back to the beginning. And I think because of our print culture and some of our um, unfortunate uh, training in in uh, academic settings, beginning in high school, where you're often asked, "Well, what does this? What is the author trying to say? You know, what does the poem mean?" And there's nothing wrong with asking that kind of question, but the first thing you have to do is really experience the 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 feeling both emotional, intellectual, whatever kind of feeling there is in the poem, and the physical quality of the sound. And and I really loved how the sibilance at the beginning, the ends in the middle, I mean, it was that kind of evolution of sound um, works with the, you know, the evolution of what you're talking about in a poem. And I'm wondering, uh, as a writer, how much of that pours off the tip of your pen and how much of that happens after the fact when you're sitting there uh, slicing and dicing this thing? Well, I think it starts in uh, training the ear to listen for the way language kind of wants to sound. That I think a lot of writers or poets, lyric poets especially, will tell you that... um, the 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 language kind of generates itself once it gets going and you really are trying to kind of take dictation from your unconscious or for the from for from the the, the melody uh, that the poem is trying to to create and one only uh i mean you can have a gift for that as a as a you know some people have a musical ear and i think i do but um i started writing poetry when i was very small and I started, uh, I mean, like a, a little kid, um, not serious poetry, but, but verses, because I really liked the way, uh, I, I liked the look of a poem on the page, and I liked the, the way the rhymes rang at the end of the lines. And um, for me, poetry was always just, it was so much fun to play around with. So I learned a lot um, before I ever wrote a poem that was worth saving by writing a lot of bad poems that were uh, technically attentive to the form. And in the process of many years of doing that, I think I trained my ear to listen for rhymes. So I didn't have to go to the to, to Clement Wood's uh, Rhyming Dictionary and Poet's Craft Book, uh, <laughs> which I often <laughs> did resort to in those days. Um, uh, for the for the rhymes that you needed to end your line, I, I don't write uh, formal, traditionally formal poetry. Although I think my poetry is quite formal, uh, but looking at my poems, you would say they were free verse of, of one kind or another. Um, but by training myself to hear the rhymes, uh, there are a lot of rhymes going on throughout my poems they just don't land in the same place uh as you expect in a traditional you know end rhyming poem as i as i once said in in a a panel at a translation conference about translating uh formal poetry my talk was called end rhyme is not an end in itself because the the nature of the of lyric poetry anyway is to um knit a formal coherence by way of sound and rhythm 
and theme and and image, but there there are patterns that uh, occur in a poem, even the most apparently informal poem uh, that hold it together. And I think in the in the generic sense, that's what rhyme is. It's like patterns of correspondences inside the poem. Well, one of the things I really love about your poem is your sense of kind of what I would call half rhyme or, or um, is it assonance? As, uh, the vowel rhyme is called assonance and the, the, the consonant rhyme is called uh, consonance. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the vowels, it's true that the vowels are, I learned, uh, you know, I've learned a lot about, about assonance and vowel rhyme from, from translation, uh, because one of the poets that I've translated is just a master at that, uh, Luis Cernuda, the Spanish poet. Um, but it's true that, that, uh, you can make words look like they rhyme and sound like they rhyme, even if they're not true rhymes by virtue of the uh, of the vowels, you know, if you have several E's in the same sentence, it creates a certain, both a sound, even though they might not all sound the same, and um, a visual uh, quality. I mean, I know that the, the, the you know, uh, Arthur Rambeau has his famous sonnet to the vowels, uh, and the, the, it's true that each vowel has its own character. Um, for me, O looks and sounds much darker than I, which sounds and looks lighter. Um, and each vowel, I think, has certain kind of connotations and implications. And, and if, you, if, you, if they fall together in a certain way in the poem, it creates an effect that you as the writer might not even be conscious of, and the reader might not be conscious of, but that it, it, is a kind of a, it creates a kind of harmony that... Um, you know, that makes it a more aesthetic experience. Uh, when you were describing it as light and dark, I was seeing it also, too, as almost like uh, <clears throat> like pixels, like this kind of, uh, you're creating almost a, a, a visual picture with the sound. Well, I hope so. I, I'm, I mean, the images in my poems are, are very visual. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of arguments in poetry uh among poets about um you know whether the sound or the image uh or the idea or name your theme is is the most uh important thing in a poem um but i think there is something very uh i have a a, a very pictorial imagination i love the movies i love photography i like looking at the bay out the window um so uh, there's a lot of visual stuff that goes on in the poems. And, you know, in the, in the best-case scenario, the, the sound of the words combined with the image create a more vivid uh, picture of what you're describing. Well, also, too, I, I love the way your poems look on the page. And to, to that effect, let's have you read uh, from Mal de Terre. Which I think, uh, which is a wonderful poem, and the way it looks on the page really uh, reflects the way it reads and what it's about. It's a beautiful poem. It's a poem with uh, staggered margins. I mean, most of my poems start at the left margin, uh, but this poem alternates between uh, uh, lines that so that start at the left and that start a little further in. And so the the 
appearance of the poem on the page is more snake-like or, or, or curvy. And what it's describing is, uh, I mean, it's really a poem about depression. Uh, and uh, But instead of calling it uh, mal de mer, as in seasickness, it's mal, mal de terre. The land I stand on feels to be moving away from beneath me, ripping the roots of the fruit trees I thought would keep dropping sweetness onto my tongue forever, but instead are withering limb by bitter limb as the climate turns and the ground drifts under my sneakers and and my jeans rip and my lunch is unsettled by so many changes I never expected. The long days of summer, numbered anyway, the moonlight fogged, my friends getting old and dropping dead before we finished our conversations. And those remaining are so annoying I can hardly take another evening stuck in their company. And that's why it seems maybe it's me who's coming undone from the dirt under me, sickening into a dune whose sand is rising slowly around my soul. Stephen Kessler, reading from his new book, Scratch Pegasus. Stephen, that's a, such a, a wonderful and evocative poem, and it, it really does get to the heart of what it feels like when your brain is, like, skipping. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I like that when you're, like... And that's a, an interesting perception of that experience, and I'd like you to talk about... Uh, finding the language to describe it in that way, which is a very unusual way to describe it, I think. I've never heard it done quite that way. Hmm. I couldn't tell you, you know. It, it's uh, When I start writing, I, do, I usually have no idea where the poem is going, except, I mean, there are cases in this book that are poems about specific people, and and in, in, in those poems, I, I really try to stay focused on getting a very clear picture of the person. But in a poem like this, it's really about an internal state. Um, for me, the whole uh, one of the pleasures and one of the consolations of of poetry is, you know, you can write about anything. You can write about any kind of experience or anything that happens to you. But um, you don't always know, or you seldom really know, what you have to say until you start saying it. And for me the discovery that goes on in the poem is is the interesting thing about it for me as the poet it's not like i never go back and revise because because i do but the initial composition is a process of really moving from one line to the next and not being sure where you're headed now i don't even remember whether i thought of the title for this poem first or or whether I just wrote the poem and then came up with the title uh, but I couldn't explain you know what what I'm trying to do because it's not completely voluntary it's really trying to listen for the suggestions of what the words are saying and what the sounds are saying and you know if you're lucky that that catches accurately a feeling that you have or an experience that you have but it's much harder than than it looks (laughs) because uh one false word you know one one bad uh comma or lack of one or one uh off rhythm can really destroy the whole thing as far as i'm concerned so that's why you know i'm i'm very concerned with trying to 
make every stroke count. You know, every syllable should be in the right place because that way you get the most out of the least words. You know, when you were describing the way you write a poem, it reminded me of the way lots of novelists, or about half of the novelists I've talked to, uh, will tell me that they don't want to know what the end of the book is so that sure. they can pre- preserve the surprise for themselves. So exactly. that will ensure that the same surprise is communicated to their reader. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's why they call creative writing creative writing, because you're creating something, and by definition, you can't know what the creation is going to be before it's, it's created. So that's, uh, that's, for me, that's part of the fun of writing, is, is not knowing and discovering as you go along. My name is Rick Kleffel, and you're listening to The Agony Column on 88.9 KUSP. We'll get back to my conversation with Stephen Kessler in a moment. Let's get back to Stephen Kessler. Stephen, you were talking about your experience of poetry as a child, and there's actually a poem in here that talks about that. That's one of the poems about teachers. This is a collection of, I think, 10 sonnets. Am I correct? Yeah. It's a, more like a selection than a collection, because uh, uh, th- there, were, there were a lot more, but uh, not all of them made the cut. But uh, yes, there's 10 sonnets in this section, and they're about... Some literal teachers of mine in various schools and then other people who were mentors or or influences on me as I was growing up. I'd like you to read the first one, Rick, because that gives you a great insight into who you are, given what we just heard. Right. Well, this is is exactly what I was talking about, uh, that I didn't... Well, this this poem will explain it. It's, It's called Rick. My brother Rick is 70 today. To me, he'll always be about 17, when I was nine and mimicked his every move, and whatever he did was suffused for me with an aura of magic, mischief, grace, and wit. So I preferred to hang out with him and his friends instead of kids my my age who were far less cool. He wrote the funniest poems for his buddies, modeled on classics from the Golden Treasury, immortalizing the guys with witty rhymes. Of course I started writing poems, too, trying to be as clever as he was, then trying to please my friends, and later, girls. But poetry was doing something to me. That's such an interesting uh, perception that you give us in that poem, and and I really love the... uh the way that you give us kind of the specifics and then roll into that final line, which is just really powerful. Uh, Talk about your brother and this uh this time of your life which seems which is clearly a, a critical part of your development as a writer and a really interesting one well i don't know how much more i can say uh than what i say in this poem i mean one of the reasons one of the motives i think for for writing a poem like this or almost any poem is to say something that you can't say in any other way and the the challenge of of this poem which is a, a sonnet uh, albeit a kesslerian uh, rather than a, a shakespearean or or a petrarchan or any other kind of sonnet but it is a sonnet and um uh in my definition of the sonnet you have to do it in 14 lines um so the great uh, challenge and the and the great uh, virtue of this form is that especially if you're writing about a person is trying to get an accurate picture in this small amount of space and and this these fourteen lines really condense whatever I could tell you about 
my brother's influence on me because it, it, it was exactly as it's described here. I just imitated everything he did. And he wrote very clever poems that were parodies of famous English poems. So I started reading the same English poems that he was reading and writing parodies about. And then I started writing parodies of them because it seemed like a cool thing to do. And uh, I read a lot of English poetry that way without even, you know, trying or even knowing that it was <laughs> it was good for me in any way. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it was like, playing with my baseball cards or something. It was, it was just something that was really fun. And, uh, but as I was saying earlier, you know, in writing these uh, very formal and in a lot of ways silly and often attempted you know, comedy, comic uh, poems, um, I learned a lot about the language and, and about uh, uh, how, how it works and, and how poems take shape on the page. And and my brother Rick, he ended up um, going into into the family business, which was real estate. And uh, but I just took a, a I veered off into <laughs> into poetry and never came back. So uh, I have partly my brother Rick to blame for for turning me on to poetry at a at a very uh, impressionable age. Well, we have him to thank. I, I, <laughs> and one of the things you said that I think is really important is that. Um, you know, all of these poems, uh, we feel, and the idea, I think, of a basic idea of a poem is to say exactly what you need to say in the least number of words. And I think that's really important. Exactly. I mean, that it's not always the least number of words. I mean, there's a, the epic poem, which is a totally different uh, kettle of fish, uh, <laughs> uh, because there's a whole different set of conventions and a, and a different set of 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 needs going on in an in a an epic poem, which is usually narrative and usually very long and and uh, more novelistic really than a lyric poem, but uh, yeah, I think the lyric um, it's uh, it's it's so economical, you know. I mean, the poems that I admire the most, perhaps, are uh, some of the ancient Greek. Uh, poems from the Greek anthology that are three or four lines and sort of epigrammatic and they just cut through everything, you know, right to, I mean, they're not trying to impress you with how clever they are or how imaginative they are or, you know, how they can flip uh, circles around the sentences. They, um, they're trying to like articulate a truth about human experience. And I, I wish I could think of an example because there, there are so many great, you know, really brief, uh, it, uh, well, here, here's one from, uh, uh, I think it's Anacreon. He says, um, it's, not your, it's not your enemies, but your friends you've got to watch. <laughs> that's, the, that's the poem. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, th things like insights into the human experience, that's, at this stage of my life, is really what I'm looking for, more than... Um, virtuosity or cleverness or um, some kind of formal accomplishment. What, what I, I, I'm looking for to poetry for what really matters to me at this stage of my life. And, and I'm hoping when I write a poem that I am, that what I'm saying really matters, you know, it really means something to me. And, and the only way, 
it'll mean something to somebody else is if it's if it has a, a kind of formal integrity that ultimately doesn't matter, but it's a means to an end. You know it, it, that a lot of people have profound thoughts and emotions, but in order to make them count as poetry, they have to take form. And you know that's what po- poetry is about in in to a large extent. Well. I think that this book really beautifully captures uh, what I would call long thoughts, the the feelings, you know, when as we see, as you grow older, you see the people around you get sick and die, and it, it's not an easy time of our lives. Uh, I'd like you to, to and, I, and I also, I really love the idea of the Kesslerian sonnet, <laughs> and I think that actually comes out of your experience of um, taking classic English poems and then satirizing them. And, and I think that's to a degree what you've done with your sonnets. Not, they're not, not they're satires, but that you build upon the, 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 what's there and make it your own. Well, you know, the uh, literature is, a, is not a, a, a one-man show. Uh, I, I really hope to be in, the, in a, a literary tradition. Um, I mean, most of us can't expect our work to be remembered very much long after we're gone, but I think we aspire to take our place in the company of the writers that we admire, you know, the writers that, that, that inspired us in the first place. And so most people who write poetry, if they're serious about it, you know, they read a lot of poetry and they've read a lot of poetry and they go back as far as they can in as many languages as they can to see what's been done and and try to absorb that in whatever way they can. I know, in addition to the, the parodies of English poems, all through my, probably well into my 30s, I was imitating other poets that I admired. Um as a way of learning their chops, you know, as a way of trying to absorb what they have done and then appropriate it to, to my own purposes. And, the, you know, the Borges sonnets, which you mentioned at the beginning of the program, were one of the inspirations, you know, translating those, those sonnets by Borges. It not only took me back to my original practice as a, as a kid, but um, it, it, it uh, moved me to try to do something like he does in some of his poems where he'll have the, the the title of the sonnet will be the name of a person. It might be a friend of his family or a, a writer that he knows or knew or uh, an old, uh, you know, a 18th century philosopher. But um, I thought, wow, what a great way to evoke a person that you want to remember. And so I started writing these things. Rick that poem about my brother um, was probably one of the first ones, I think. And then I started, you know, then the other people's uh, memories kept popping into my head. People I didn't even remember that I remembered. Uh, read us, I loved uh, Jesus uh, Chavaria. He- Jesus Chavaria, yeah. He's a high school uh, history teacher of mine. Um, and he's still, uh, I looked him up on, on the internet, and he, he taught at UC Santa Barbara for a while, and then he started some sort of association of Mexican-American entrepreneurs. And I think this is still going on. Um, uh, anyway, Jesus Chavaria. And this, this is a true story. These, <laughs> these poems are based upon true stories. <laughs> Jesus Chavaria. 
He was my high school American history teacher, a handsome young man with a pockmarked face, black hair, and the faintest trace of a Mexican accent. He showed up the first day of class in my junior year, surveyed the room full of restless adolescents, and launched into a speech something like this. <clears throat> Ever since the beginning of time, man has had to overcome temptations, obstacles to achievement, and the ordeals of hunger, thirst, and the labor of earning a living. The burdens of civilization can be heavy, the sacrifices great, the path to success steep, but discipline is rewarded. So there will be no talking in this class. That's that. That's so great. It's really, I mean, it speaks to both levels so perfectly, and uh, that's what I really love about but, uh, which to, which both levels. Well, I mean, what he says in a general sense. Oh yeah. And, and we're kind of buying <laughs> it, going that direction, and then when he comes up with the <laughs> with the the stinger, I yeah. think that really works. It's great yeah. for us. It's great for him, and it's great for you. Uh, the the following section um, looks at. Uh, uh, what you call wild men. Right. And this is a very interesting section. Uh, I, I really love, there's a very playful poem in there called When Edgar Met Audrey. Right. Uh, this poem, again, it, it, I know how it started because I have, I have I'm sort of a postcard collector and I especially like black and white postcards and there's a whole genre of you know, portraits of famous people. Uh, and I have one of Edgar Allan Poe and also one of Audrey Hepburn. And I, for some reason, I just put them up on my bookcase next to each other because they look like a really cute couple. And, uh, and then this poem occurred. It's called When Edgar Met Audrey. When Edgar met Audrey at a Red Death benefit, and they were soon dating and were seen at Elaine's or Ciro's or Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in San Francisco, jetting from one enchanted city to another in a frenzy of fresh romance. The gossip columnists were beside themselves, speculating on the couple's spectacular sex life, Hepburn's delicate elegance and Poe's drunken abandon, inflaming the imaginations of the magazines, their pictures appearing everywhere, often in flight from paparazzi, yet dignified always, and resigned to tolerating their strange fame, now compounded by their alliance. Those were times when a writer's lines were remembered, and a star's face blazed with beauty only a poet could begin to perceive and celebrate in its true subtlety, inventing rhymes to imitate the symmetry of cheekbones and deep brown eyes, ballad-worthy, tragic figures doomed like his to an early demise. Watching their films on my flat-screen plasma home entertainment system, on these perfectly restored director's cut DVDs, replete with exclusive interviews and outtakes where the star's affection is obvious, I sip my absinthe and honor their integrity, vulnerable to every terrible public humiliation yet poised as they were taken down by the burden of their renown. Audrey, Edgar, your genius shines, your unlikely love, a tale I'll relate to anyone still listening at this late hour when so few know you anymore, truly as you were. 
Stephen Kessler reading from his new book, Peg- Scratch Pegasus. Stephen, we have uh, uh, an event that you're going to be having here. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Well, there are a couple of events coming up. Uh, the one in Santa Cruz is uh, next Saturday, the 20th of April, at Felix Culpa Gallery, where I'll be reading from Scratch Pegasus and the other book that uh, just came out, uh, a translation of Vicente Alexandre, the Spanish poet. Uh, and that will uh, be happening next Saturday, the 20th of April, at 7.30 at Felix Culpa Gallery, downtown Santa Cruz, behind uh, Streetlight Records. And then on Wednesday, this this coming Wednesday, the 17th, in San Jose, uh, uh, 7 o'clock at the Works Gallery um, on 1st Street, I think it's 451 South 1st Street, I will be uh, reading from uh, Just from Scratch Pegasus, and th- that, that reading is sponsored by the uh, Poetry Center San Jose, and uh, that will be the official launch of this book because the publisher is on that side of the hill and he will be uh bringing bringing the books. So I got two, I got a big week coming up uh Wednesday and uh, and Saturday uh in San Jose and Santa Cruz. I'd like you to talk just a little bit about uh some of the mechanics of publishing this book. We have a selection of poems. Were you the final arbiter of this? Did you work with an editor or did well, the way this happened was that uh, my friend Robert Pesich, who's a very good poet uh, living over in Silicon Valley in uh, Sunnyvale, uh, what, he inherited a press. <laughs> Swan Scythe Press was founded in Sacramento, I'm not sure, but probably in the 60s or 70s, by uh, Sandra McPherson and James Den Boer. And Sandra McPherson, who's a poet up in the Delta area, uh, was a teacher of Robert Pesich up at UC Davis when he was a student there. And I guess when she and her partner, uh, James Den Boer, decided to, uh, that they just wanted to retire from uh, their little small press venture, and they, they have a, quite a big catalog. I don't know exactly how many books, but they have a lot of books that they published over uh, 20 or 30 or maybe even 40 years. Um, uh, they wanted to give it up, but they didn't want to just close down the press. So they approached uh, Rob Pesich and uh, ha- basically bequeathed the, the 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 imprint to him because they trusted his uh, you know his accomplishment as a as a poet and and his taste. Um, so uh, when Rob told me about this, I said, um, "Well, you want to take a look at a manuscript." <laughs> I mean, when I get in on the ground floor, it's so hard. I mean, I've been publishing for 45 years, and you wouldn't believe how hard it is to get a book of poetry published. You know, unless you have a contract with a a, a, a bigger uh, house, and you know, you know they're going to take every one of your books. But that's the dream of every 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 poet, and it's probably a very very minuscule percentage of people. So even someone like me, who have quite a long bibliography. Um, uh, I didn't know what, you know, I had a couple of ideas of who I might show this manuscript to. But so I I gave it to Rob and I said, look, if if you like it and you want to publish it, uh, I'll I'll help with the the line editing and production process because he has a a real job. I mean, he has a a day job. Um, And he also uh, did not have a lot of experience in, 
I mean, he'd, he'd edit, been edit, editor on some magazines, but never of books. And I have a lot of experience with books. And so I just said, look, you know, I'll, 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 if you want me, if you like the book and if you want me to, I will help nurse it into existence. Um, so th- that's how it started. And he liked the book. He said he wanted to do it. And then we wrote up a one page contract and had each of our job descriptions. And, you know, in the, in the old fashioned gentleman's handshake kind of agreement, um, we just proceeded. And, uh, uh, this is one of the great virtues of small presses is that even though you don't have the reach of a major publisher and the publicity machinery and the national distribution, although they do have, I mean, th- this book can be gotten anywhere, but it's, um, you know, the press run is not very big because poetry is not expected to sell very much. But the advantage of working with a, a, a one-man or a one-woman or very small um Publishers that you often get to participate in the in the process of of you know in in what the cover looks like and what the what kind of marketing materials are going to be created and all that kind of thing. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I've, I'm a book person from way back, and I really am a print person in every form, from you know fine press letterpress printing to throw away recyclable newspapers. I just love print. And so the chance to create a book, which is a physical object in the world, after all, even if there are only 500 copies, uh, somebody might stumble across it in some library somewhere 50 years from now, and hopefully it will speak to them in some way. So it, it has a stunning cover too. I yeah. who did the illustration? Robert Weinstock. Uh Robert Weinstock is a, an artist in New York. Uh, he's an author of children's books. He's published several children's books with his own his own very funny uh, uh verse and and uh really eccentric illustrations. He's a really great artist, I think. He found this this uh uh print of or a, an engraving of a of a Pegasus somewhere on the internet from some ancient uh, Persian artwork, um, and uh, he proceeded to create a background for the image, uh, which is really stunningly nightlike. Uh, I think the the texture of what looks like the sky behind the Pegasus figure on the cover is the sidewalk in front of his brownstone in Brooklyn. Uh, He went out and he took photographs of the sidewalk and then came back and used it as as the background for this illustration. And the, the, the little pits that are probably originally pits in the concrete, which are reversed in the dark image, look like the little clusters of stars in the sky behind Pegasus. I'm speaking with Stephen Kessler. His new book of collection of poetry is Scratch Pegasus. We'll be back in a moment. Stephen, um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the way that um, you're a publisher now, uh, once again. Well, an an editor. Uh, I'm not a publisher, really. But uh, you're talking about the Redwood Coast Review? Yes. Yeah. No, I'm just the editor of that. Um, I've I've always been a very good editor, but a very poor publisher. You know, the publisher is the one who deals with the business side of things, and the editor is the one who deals with the creative side. And uh, I have attempted to be a publisher numerous times in my life without too much success uh, in terms of 
you know, a, a, a long, a long-lived uh, enterprise. But it, with this uh, project, the Redwood Coast Review, I am the editor, and the publishers are Coast Community Library in Point Arena up on the Mendocino Coast, and the Independent Coast Observer, which is a, a weekly newspaper in Wallala. So the the uh, Redwood Coast Review is the quarterly literary supplement for the Independent Coast Observer. Um, and there, and although I did have to sell the ads for the first few issues, uh, we've been almost 15 years now in business, and now the ads sell themselves, uh, and I don't have to do that part at all, and I can just concentrate on the editorial content. Well, it must be a very different uh, challenge for you from... Your the ten thousand other jobs that you're doing, and I'd like you also to tell us a little bit about your latest book of translation. Okay, well, just briefly about editing versus writing. I I, th- I think of the difference between editing and writing, editing a magazine especially, is the difference between being a soloist and being a band leader. You know, instead of uh, just doing your own thing, you are trying to orchestrate a bunch of other people to do something harmoniously. And for me, that's part of the fun of doing a, a periodical is, is collaging together a lot of different material in ways that hopefully relate to each other. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, discovering and, and, uh, giving writers a, a venue for doing what they do. The, the RCR is mostly essays, which is a, a genre that it's actually pretty popular now, but there aren't very many, uh, print venues for, for, kind of literary or cultural essays. So um, anyway, that's the Redwood Coast Review. You can, you know, find it online and uh, pick it up in Bookshop Santa Cruz and in the uh, downtown Santa Cruz Public Library, in the works in Pacific Grove, in uh, the Live Oak and Aptos branches and Scotts Valley branches of Santa Cruz Public Library, Capitola Book Cafe. So it's around. uh, It's a little 12-page tabloid, and it's... uh, the 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 front page story in the current issue is a an essay by critic Jonah Raskin on the plethora of biographies of Jack Kerouac, and he kind of deconstructs the 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 the, the myth of of Jack Kerouac and explains or attempts to explain why there are so many biographies of Jack Kerouac and nobody really knows who Jack Kerouac really was because he created so many myths about himself. Anyway, uh, that's the Redwood Coast Review. Uh, now, as for the uh, Vicente Alexandre book, which I mentioned that I'll be reading from at Felix Culpa next uh, Saturday, well, it's too bad we don't have three or four hours to talk about Vicente Alexandre. Maybe we could do this uh, another whole show just about this book uh, and about this poet because he's a really important poet for me. Uh, I met him in Madrid in 19... 19- 73, uh, when I was a 26-year-old poet and beginning translator, uh, he encouraged me to translate one of his books. I translated the book or a selection from the book uh, with his cooperation. Uh, Shortly after the translation was published, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, My book was one of only two very small translations of his work available at the time in the country. So suddenly I was a semi-famous translator because, um, you know, my, uh, the, the, my book was mentioned in the article in the New York Times book review that Robert Bly wrote about Vicente Alexandre. Anyway, Alexandre was a very important Spanish poet, uh, 
contemporary of Garcia Lorca and a number of other really great uh, poets of that generation. And the the book, uh, Poems of Consummation, is uh, late-life poems written during his 60s, uh, now 60s, you know, or the new 40s, but at the time, especially if you had tuberculosis of the kidney, as he did and was a semi-invalid all his life, 60s felt old to him, and he started looking toward the end of his life. And he... He wrote these really remarkable, very strange uh, uh, philosophical poems about uh, memory, a- aging, uh, death, and whatever follows death. Uh, so this book is... Uh, I, I don't think I could have translated it uh, until fairly recently because I think you have to be at a certain stage of your life to... Com- I don't know if anybody completely under- understands these poems, but to to get these poems in a, in a fundamental way because otherwise they can seem very obscure and even if you are old they can seem pretty obscure but they're not they're profound in my opinion they're not obscure i could read try to find a short one uh for you if, just to give you an example let's hear a short one we have time for one quick short one okay um how about it doesn't know youth doesn't know and that's why it lasts and continues What's your hurry? And the wind blows, sweeping along the swift to almost spin and go on, go windswept, lightly over the sea, feet skimming spray. Life, life is being young and nothing else. Listen, listen. But the silent sound doesn't denounce itself, except on the lips of the young. They hear it in kisses. Only they, in their slim hearing, can or listen. Red-kissed pulp, they pronounce. Stephen Kessler reading from his new collection of translations of... Vicente Alexandre, a Spanish poet. Poems of Consummation by Vicente Alexandre. And uh, Stephen Kessler's new uh, collection of poems is Scratch Pegasus. He'll be at the Felix Culpa Gallery this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. That is correct. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Well, thank you for inviting me. Celebrating 40 years together, this is 88.9 KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. find full-length versions of the interviews you hear on this show on my website, The Agony Column, at agonycolumn.com, and much more. Book news, podcasts, readings, reviews, and commentary. You can friend The Agony Column on Facebook and get updates on new books worth your valuable reading time on Twitter by following the hashtag pound W-Y-V-R-T. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Tune in every Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. for The Agony Column on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. Celebrating 40 years together, this is 88.9 KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. How does a message reach him from the outside? Except 
by that most valuable hunting ground ever given to the student of the unusual. The agony column. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>